asked a woman to be on the podcast this week, and she said yes, and we set up a time and a date, and then she texted back when she found out that we do these things face-to-face, looking each other in the eye, and uh, your place, not mine, we're not in a studio, and also that it would not be done on Zoom in 20 minutes. Uh, It would take more like 80 minutes, and we get into some depth, and she texted back and said, no. And um, I said, I completely understand, because some people want to take 20 minutes, you know, light, 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 put in a plug for whatever it is they're about, and then go on. And we're not about that. We take some time. So we record for 80 minutes and put about 40 or 50 minutes. We try to keep it under an hour, but... Yeah, today's guest, I mean, is just so many dimensions to this person. Um, As a girl, as a young woman, she's been through so much. And I want to give you a heads up. We go everywhere from uh, poverty, eating disorders, underground raves, a career in radio, you know, coming from uh, hard scrabble, from not very much from very humble origins where her grandparents didn't have a bathroom in the 1960s, not an inside bathroom, had an outhouse, Um, all the way from being in the middle class, upper middle class. And and then we go on from there into how, um, heads up, a miscarriage almost killed her in the hospital, in the ER, almost bled out, fainting, you know, passing out. And that means we're going to touch on the procedure that could have easily uh, made that not a life-threatening situation. So we talk about women's health care. And that means, you know, some people call a DNC an abortion. In this case, uh, the <laughs> there was no child. There was a piece of necrotic tissue, dead tissue, dead. Her body was going to slough it off. She was going to have a miscarriage. Everyone knew it. And she chose to do that like she bore her children at home. And I am very upset and very troubled about the public policy implications of the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe v. Wade. Because it could, if we have a place in which we value a piece of dead tissue, dead, dead, not coming back to life, no Lazarus here, dead tissue, more than a viable 30-something-year-old woman who is very much alive, then something's really wrong. Something's really wrong with the law. It's really wrong with public policy. And it has everything to do with whether we value women, living women. Uh, Three of them are my daughters. One of them is my wife. You know, and so that means we touch on that. So if you don't want to get into that whole area, don't listen. And then then we go on to her... um, really spiritual quest in talking about the ancestors, and particularly the matriarchal line, the mothers of mothers of mothers of mothers. So it's a hell of an episode. I just wanted to be fair warning. We're not, you know, we're not light and here and gone by the commercial break. Um, we're here to get into some depth and to really listen to this wonderful guest, Kendall Kendrick. It was at that moment that I realized I had been worrying about all the wrong things. This is In Her Words, 
a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In her words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hi there, I'm Stuart Watson and this is In Her Words. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Kendall, Kendrick and I sat under a picnic shelter at a picnic table out in Latta Nature Preserve where she used to work. She's very involved in history locally. She's had a wonderful career in radio. She's got a great voice. You can easily listen to her. And thank you, Brian Baltshevitz, who's editing for the for the vacationing Liz uh, Egan Bruno this week. Brian took the cicadas out. So if you like cicadas, sorry, there's not going to be cicadas in this week's episode. If you like a just an amazing, amazing, inspiring story. Here's Kendall Kendrick. Where were you born? Uh, Lakeland, Florida. Hospital or home? Hospital. But my children were born at home. Did you grow up in Lakeland, Florida? I lived there till I was 10 years old and my mom remarried and then we moved to Columbus, Georgia, which was one of my least favorite places I've lived in my life. I grew up not far from there. Yeah. And so uh, Columbus military, heavy military, Fort Benning. Fort Benning. Yeah, that's how, that's kind of how we ended up there. My, um, well, so I, I have to backtrack because I have to always say this. I'm a fifth generation Floridian, which ah, is pretty unusual. Very rare. My grandparents, so I, I was born in Lakeland, but I spent a lot of my time in a little town called Plant City, which is the strawberry capital, supposedly. There's lots of strawberry capitals, but a lot of strawberries are grown there, a lot of citrus fruit. And so my grandparents were uh, cattle farmers, small, very, very poor, rural raised all five children in a three-room shack, basically didn't have running water until probably the 1960s. Um, and they continued- No bathroom? No, outhouse. Built till the 60s? I think so, yeah, I believe so. My dad was born in 1950 and he talks about that. So, and then they, and they didn't have a kitchen on the house. My grandfather built that shack essentially that, you know, would be destroyed in hurricanes and be rebuilt and whatnot. Um, and, but I, so I, so eventually got a kitchen, eventually got a bathroom, but I was like t a 10 acre farm and it was, one, it's one of my happiest places. My, I loved my grandmother dearly. I loved my grandparents and I loved uh, this, even though I was a really, like I didn't, my cousins all loved to be barefoot out running in pastures. I had to wash my feet every night. Like I was very obsessive about you know, the way things felt and, but it, it is absolutely uh, my greatest memories and it shaped so much of who I was. And then- um, Did you ever have the thought, we're poor or grandma and grandpa are poor? I had no idea. I had no idea until I moved to Georgia. I had no idea. We, we were poor. We weren't, we weren't three room shack poor. My grandparents were. I don't believe we were middle class, whatever that would be considered. And what was it in Georgia that let you know? There was, there was such a class divide 
there was such a there was such a, a racial divide. There was so much of that in Columbus, and so you know, Florida is not any better. Honestly, it's really not. But but when, I mean, like the way I grew up, I had no idea. A ten or twelve year old. Yeah. What did you see? Because you didn't know the right. term. Well, I was class made fun divide. of. I was bullied as uh, soon as I I, I started because sixth grade. Of... Uh, I didn't. I didn't have the right clothes like all these name brands i remember that this is like the late 80s for me so this is like the the name brands and i think i just think that where i grew up in florida um i think that everybody was kind of in a similar situation and so we just didn't there was no i don't know there were, i just didn't understand it wasn't like i was from the rich part of florida you know i was from this pretty Four-ish place off of I four, you know, so between right Disney World and coming, Tampa. <laughs> right as you're coming to adolescence. Oh yeah, no, it, it 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 um it. I started having panic attacks, which people didn't really have a label for that in the. I feel like at that time in what the late eighties, like? uh, I my chest would hurt all day at school, and I couldn't breathe. And you know, I would go to lunch, and these girls would just make they would make fun of me i had really crooked teeth and i had anything anything they could make fun of me for they they did i was smart um undiagnosed adhd which eventually sort of showed up as that transition happened so i'd gone from the straight a student to making you know c's and d's and trying to pass in sixth grade and so what i'll what i'll tell you happened is that within um you know, by try, I, I learned about trying to control and self-medicating. And by the end of sixth grade, I had an eating disorder. I couldn't eat because I had developed this phobia and this fear of, I'm already like, I'm already vulnerable in telling you all my secrets. <laughs> but I think it's important because... Um, well, if you don't want to talk about it, don't. No, I, but... I, I can because I think this is something that's, um, you know, as a mother, I've, I've dealt with this as well. And so I think it's, we don't, we don't talk about eating disorders enough. Um, and it's not something that has, you know, once I sort of got got through it, it lasted for several months and I and I barely ate. I got really, really sick and probably was probably needed to be, you know, hospitalized. But again, we go back to that time period and you know, my parents were absolutely doing the very best they could. They didn't they didn't understand. They didn't know what How was did your going mother on. react? Uh, my mom reacted in in a lot of fear, you know, which I understand as a mom. I have four daughters and teenage girls and adults. And um, she reacted in fear. She didn't know. And a lot of it, I, I was able to hide. Like when it started, I was hiding it. And then I would, what I would do is in the summers, you know, this is my first year um, in Georgia. And so in the summers I would go back and I would stay with my dad and go like stay at the farm. Uh, I think at that point, my dad was actually living back at the farm. And cause my grandparents sort of gave out some of the property to their kids. Uh, but, you know, I was just doing all this, like, you know, secretive, not eating food, spitting food out. That's that's how some, you know, how some of these eating disorders work. And it, Vomiting? It just, no, I was never bulimic and I wasn't anorexic. I had what they would call now an RFED, so sort of an otherwise restrictive food. Right. And I can't remember exactly what the that acronym stands for, but I mine was a fear of choking, so right. I couldn't swallow food. Uh, and it's just, it was just control. It was just a, a way to control the circumstances. It was way, the way that my body responded to what, you know, what was going on. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, about, you know, body image or food or, or, or I mean, uh, weight loss. It wasn't, it wasn't anything related to that. But, um, 
those things happen in all kinds of different ways to not just, you know, actually not just girls. They happen to boys and girls. We have such a prevalence of that, especially now. So that was, uh, I, I feel like, you know, that's not, that's not like some, I wouldn't say that the, those few months of my life, that experience necessarily shaped me, but it's something that I hadn't realized until several years ago as a mom with a, a child going through that. I hadn't um, come to terms with that period of time in my life and sort of the trauma involved in just moving and not being accepted and then also recognizing for the first time in my life that there were all these differences and that continued throughout high school. I graduated from barely, I barely graduated uh, from high school in Columbus and just, you know, continued to, to struggle with socially and um, academically. What did you do at age 18? Where'd you go? Well, I graduated at 17. I was, I graduated six months before I turned 18. Um, so I wanted to be, well, first I wanted to be a ballerina. I was a dancer and that was, that became my escape of this. It was my story uh, probably by, you know, middle school, early high school was, well, maybe from the moment I moved to Georgia was I'm getting out of here and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get out of here. I resented the place so much. I resented the people. I, re I just had so much anger for my life. I had this constant story in my head that if I'd never left Florida, I would be okay. And I'd be this different person. I don't think that's true. I think I was going to be wherever <laughs> I was. And I think these things were going, I think there was a lot of, you know, family history and whatnot and things that were going to show up. Did you up. have a best friend? I, I, I would have best friends. I mean, I had a couple of, a couple of close friends. Um, I had one, you know, particular best friend that we were sort of on again, off again. I wasn't, I didn't not have friends. I just, but not somebody who you could really lean on. Like you didn't have a teacher who could put her arm around you and no. really mm -hmm. hear you out. No, not that I remember. Mm -mm. Mm. No, I mean, I, I, I think I, what I started to do when I was, well, so let me back up. So I wanted to be a dancer and I loved dancing and I was, and I was good at dancing. I was a good ballet dancer. And Great. I, not great. No. Could you have been great? I think I could have. I think with the right, I think with the right, um, I think, I think with, I, I, I mean, I was literally at like 15, I was going in, I remember I was nannying, um, for, for two little boys one summer, uh, so that I could pay for my ballet classes because my, my mom and my stepdad were both working two jobs just to make ends meet. You know, my mom was, uh, they were, my stepdad was a teacher. You work at Sears in the catalog department at night. Remember those? And then my mom, um, she was like a teacher's assistant for special ed kids in middle school. And then she would go work at a daycare, you know, so she would work till seven something every night. And my stepdad would work till nine o'clock every night. And they just worked so hard to try to, you know, make, make ends meet. But I had this dream of moving here to North Carolina and going to what was called the North Carolina School of the Arts at the time in Winston-Salem. It's now the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Um, and so that was my, that was my get out of here ticket. And I, um, I got injured. I blew out my knee and I really just needed like a simple surgery. And I, I think my parents just couldn't afford it. And so I didn't have it and I quit dancing. And that was the end of, you know, that was the end of the road there for me. And I, 
I didn't know what I was going to do. Things tended to get a little, a little dark for me. I think, you know, at 16, there's teenage angst and I uh, was very, you know, depressed and anxious and just didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I had this, um, I don't know. I always, I love to write and I had this desire to do journalism. I had been on the high school, uh, newspaper. And so my senior year of high school, I was in, uh, this work program called DCT. And so you would go half a day to school and then you would just go work, you know, um, which I loved because I left school at 12 o'clock and I was what like, job? I'm out of here. I was waitressing. So Where? which kind of leaves a place called Po Folks. <laughs> I don't I don't know if that was like just a Columbus thing. I'm seeing fried chicken. Basically that's it. You know, fried chicken food, and two sides. Meatloaf, yeah. meat and three, my, meat and two. My first my first job waitressing at sixteen was at a barbecue. Big place. tips, huge tips. Yeah, no, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. And then and then I moved over to I moved over to Po Folks. I worked at Country's Barbecue and then I moved over to Po Folks. Again, if this all just gives you like a little painting of a picture of the town that I was living in. Notice there is no restaurant billed as rich folks. There was, there was definitely not. Um, and so I, so my, I had, I will say my senior year, I did have this great teacher. I had the, the, the man who ran the Mr. Tovey, he ran the DCT program. Most of the people in that class were not going to college. So it was really about trades or what do you want to do and how can we get you there? And he would plan, you know, field trips to the newspaper. Um, he would bring in TV people to talk to us, but really it was for my benefit. And I thought that that was amazing and it, and it had a huge impact on me. And so somebody paid attention to you. Somebody did. He did. And I will tell you that not, not too many years ago, um, he reached out to me maybe on you know Facebook or something. And he said, you know, I'm so proud of you. I knew that you had it in you. I knew, oh, you're going to like, you know, God, that makes me I, want to cry. Yeah, me too. Me too. He, uh, it just, it was, I was, I was in so much pain in that period of my time. And to have somebody who believed in me that way, to see the potential in me is, uh, amazing because I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't had that class. I'm not sure. And then this magical, amazing thing happened that I met this woman who was the very well-known radio DJ in town. Shelby Guest. This was 1994. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. She had, so there'd been this, you know, again, in a small town like Columbus, there's not, there's not all this great radio there, but because I had grown up between Tampa and Orlando, where I grew up, I could hear both, you know, 100,000 watt stations. I could hear stations from Orlando and the stations from Tampa. And I loved music. Like I loved, loved, loved music. My dad was a musician. I just, music lit me up from a young age. You sing? God, no. Absolutely not. I still don't. But don't you've don't got sing. These, you've got these pipes. It's they're only good for talking. They're only good for speaking. That's they're not for singing. Uh, it's a whole it's a whole other thing. Um, but and I'd played musical instruments, but I wasn't. You know, I wasn't like it wasn't gifted at that. So what I would do is when I would go back to Florida to see my dad in the summers, I would take my cassettes and my little boombox and I would record all the radio shows. Bubba the Love Sponge was this huge <laughs> Florida show. Uh, he may have been nationally syndicated, but in the, you know, in the early 90s. And I would record these, these stations. The Power Pig was the big station, I think, in Tampa. And there was like XL 106.7 in Orlando and it's Q105. Like it's, I grew up 
in the time of like the the morning shows. So I would just listen to these tapes that I would, you know, record of these shows. But that thought came to me at some point that I wanted, you know, I wanted to be in radio. And when I was 14, I had, you know, we would call to win, you know, to, to win prizes. And I had called this radio station and Shelby Guest was the DJ. And she asked this trivia question and I called and I got it correct. She's like, let me get your information, get your prize. And then she said, you know, you have a really good voice. Have you ever thought about going to the radio? And I was like, uh, I'm 14, <laughs> you know? And, and then fast forward, you know, three, some three something years later, I ran into her and I met her and I told her, Hey, when I was 14, I called you and she remembered it. And then she said, well, do you want to come to the station? You know, I'll give you a tour. Right. And that was July, 1994. And I spent the next 15 years in radio. And so I was, you know, on the air with them. I kind of did this internship. What did you love God, about, about being on the air? And see, this is hard yeah. to explain yeah. to the kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they don't understand the love affair no. with newspapering or radio yeah. or even really broadcast television. Yeah. Um, so try to explain mm -hmm. how you fell in love mm. with radio. Wow. What was it about it? Well, I have to say the first radio station I worked for was it had been a top 40 it had been the top 40 at one point it was no longer it was now a light adult contemporary station they sold out like, to the man we were, we were literally like you know read i had we would read liner cards you didn't get to speak for yourself you had to stick to the script so you know in the breaks you would read your liner cards and it, you know, like 107.3, home of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Oh, I like, feel calmer already. <laughs> Kendall, I'm just going to put that on a loop. <laughs> right. Here's Elton John, uh, <laughs> Candle in the Wind. So that's, so that was, here I am, this like 17-year-old. And, and at the same time that I'm getting into radio, I'm also getting into the rave scene. Right. So this is again, this is like the, the sort of mid 90s and, and the rave, the raver rave scene had been going on since the 80s. Were there glow sticks? Oh, my God. So was I, there, I, I, I don't know if I'm poisoned from all the glow sticks. Was there Molly? Was it there was e? it was called uh, it was called X back in the day. X. And it was it was it was the, not, it was, e, it was, not, not Molly. E, it was not Molly. There was there was there were many, many things that I. Well, not uh, implicate myself in, but I, so I wanted <laughs> statute to of be, limitations. statute of limitations, exactly 30 years ago. You don't want your kids hearing. Oh, you. you know, they know all the things. Uh, <laughs> they know more than they'll ever want to know. Um, they, you know, the cautionary tales, but I wanted to be a rave DJ. So we would go to Atlanta, you'd go dance all night, you'd go to this warehouse and it'd be like illegal. And you'd have these DJs from all over, over and, you know, and the lights and the music. And then you're like walking out at 10 a.m. into the sun dying. But, you you know, I just thought this is like amazing. So I feel like my life is sort of this constant juxtaposition of here's me going, you know, into these warehouses and dancing all night to this electronic music. And then here I am working the graveyard shift on Light 107.3 playing you know, Mariah Carey and Elton John. <laughs> and so it, what I really, what I really wanted was I wanted, I wanted to be doing, you know, playing the music that I loved. So that was my, that was always my goal to get to that point, to not be doing um, the, you know, that, that kind of music. 
So it was like what they called uh, AOR album oriented rock. So it was classic rock, new rock still wasn't, wasn't up to the standards that I was trying to get to. You asked me, you asked me a question and this is, this is the ADHD showing up. Um, I didn't answer it. I don't, I don't know how to, I still don't know how to answer. What was it about it? It's a like drug. The, radio was a drug. I think the goal was to be that someone on the radio. I think that was the goal. I think that's what drove me was I wanted to be, you know, I had come from being this kid that was bullied and felt like I was nobody. And I always had this drive in me to be somebody, you know, to be known. And maybe that was just coming from my insecurities. And I think that that was what was driving me was I wanted to be those DJs that I would listen to in Florida. I wanted to be somebody who I wasn't. That was really, I thought if I can be this person, if I could be the Shelby guest that I looked up to on the air there, then, um, you know, I would, I would love myself. Like, cause I didn't like myself at all. I couldn't be alone with myself. And I think that's what it was, is that radio was just the outlet for me. The first, the first time I ever went on the air back when I was 17, I thought I was going to throw up. I literally had a garbage can like under the console because I, you know, I was so terrified. And again, I was just like reading liner cards. It's all I had to do was turn that red button on. And it's not like there's a thousand people out no, there. No, you don't see it's anybody. It's a mic. Yeah. And, but it, but it was so. But, oh my God, they're listening. Everybody's so listening to every. Scary. And I had stage fright. So, you know, we would go and, you know, you, you're, you're, in, when you go out in public, you're in front of people and you host things, you MC things. I was terrified of all of that, which is, which is pretty funny now, almost 30 years later to look at. But I could always do that. I could start at the bottom and very quickly work my way up. I had a, a pretty strong work ethic and was also, I, be, I believe that growing up in radio at that time before it was corporate radio, because we didn't, Clear Channel didn't own everything or what we call iHeartRadio now or Cox or any of those companies that now, you know, own all of it, that wasn't the case. I was still at that point working for all mom and pop stations. And it's hard to believe. It's really crazy. And I where the owner could visit the station. The owner worked in the station, right? In some of these. And you'd, you'd see them in the hallway. You'd be terrified of them. They'd be like in that corner and you'd be like, I'm not going over on that. I'm not going over on that side. But well it was fun too. I you know let me let me preface it by saying also Radio was so fun. Better and... than Po folks? <laughs> oh, way better than Po folks. So much better. I mean, we had a great time, you know? We had a it was just so exciting and and fun, even even playing Elton John. But but when I started Don't be dissing Elton. I know, I know. When I started to when I when I got to this other station, I started to become Kendall. You know, that's where the personality because I had to learn Did to you speak use that for myself. Name? Kendall is not my real name. Not going to give you my real name, but Kendall is not my, Kendall is my radio name. Kendall is not my birth name, but I've had it almost 30 years. So how about what? that, right? Because at that time, what here's the thing. What does your mom call She you? calls me the name that she gave me, but in public, she will call me Kendall because she had, she learned that back then. Because here is the thing that was different. What's very different about now, and you will know this as a broadcaster and a personality, a public personality, the best story that I have to tell is that they would call the, the radio station line. The hotline was reserved. That was a private number that people could get directly to, but they would call the request line. And you would get, uh, we're calling from, you know, Muskogee County Jail. You have a collect call and the person from, and then the person would go, play Freebird. Leonard Skinner. That was the, 
anyway, that's the best jail And story. would you play Freebird? Of course, absolutely. Of you course. You could go take a smoke right, break I was like, during that, I, that was a smoke song. <laughs> I was a smoker. I had, I knew. That it was you a had, bathroom break. I was just telling someone the other day. Stairway was asking to heaven. questions about radio. I said, the, here's the, you knew uh, Elton John, Tiny Dancer. But here's what I yeah. want to know. Yeah. Who am I talking to right now? I mean, <laughs> you seem um, like you're being honest. Yeah. Like that you're a fully sort of formed person. Yeah. Yeah. Is that because you created a persona and then embodied it? Like, no. What not happened at all. to the girl? No. I mean, how were no. you ever able to sort of? Yeah. Get your Lend the two? shit together. Yeah. Like it took a lot of work. It's been it's been the last, you know, I would say it's been the last 20 years of figuring that out because that version of me in radio that once I became this local celebrity, I mean, I was 20 years old and everybody knew who I was in the city and remember I thought that was going to fix me. I thought that was going to be the thing that made me better uh, and love myself. But it, it made it worse because here here I had achieved this thing that I thought was the ultimate goal. And meanwhile, those those people from high school, from middle school, from, you know, whatever that had made fun of me. Now everybody wanted to know me. Everybody wanted, you know, free tickets from me. And so did you ever go back to the mean girls from middle school and go? How you like me now, no, bitches? No, but, no, but I remember being, I remember, you know, seeing them, like we got a hockey team in Columbus and that was the big thing and everybody would go. And I, and, and so back to where I said I held a stage right, I would have to go out on the ice in between periods and like do these MC and give out t-shirts and stuff. And it would, I had to like get over that. It terrified me, uh, which now I, you know, but since I will walk in front of- You knew that they now knew that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think is that the same girl And I think that... at a really at a really immature level for me, uh, I was spiteful, and I and I wanted you know I wanted them to feel something away, and I but now as a you know grown woman who is the mother of you know three adults and a almost adult, uh, I just. You know, I, I, I just, I under, I've done a lot of work for that little girl and I know that, you know, I was just, I was hurting and everybody's doing the best they can. And those girls, whatever was going on in their life made them that way. You know, I don't know. I don't know why they were that way, but, um, when it made you me say you did now. a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Can you therapy, say what? Sure. Therapy okay. and all sorts of modalities, but I think, uh, Medi what was meditation the, and mindfulness and learning, you know, trauma work. And I mean, I've really kind of done everything that, that there is because I just didn't, I, I kept suffering. I kept trying to get to this thing that was going to make me better throughout my adult life. And it just wasn't, it wasn't working. So yeah, a lot of self-medicating, like that's, I'll, I'll stop there and I'll, I'll say just that, that there was always, I was always looking for something to make me feel different than I felt. And I went down a lot of different avenues to do that. And it just continued to not work. And so I had to figure out some ways to not do those things anymore. Was this a sudden transformation or was no. it, it was just like a long? No, yeah, it has been such, it has been such a long road. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. I got married. Uh, I had a baby when I was 23, 24. And to my first husband, uh, I had a did baby. Did you wanna? I wanted. I wanted. I did. I wanted babies. Was, I was that gonna fix it too? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I wanted babies in high school. <laughs> I was one of those weird people who was just like, I had a very early biological clock, but I really did. I once I started having babies, I kept having babies, and I did think that that was, you know, gonna fix things. But you probably weren't a horrible mom. You were. uh, no, no. I think that there were, I, you know, I, I think any, any person, any mother goes back and thinks, I wish that I could have done things different. What I, I was a young mom and in today's standards, you know, and what I wish is that I could have had my shit together before I became a mom. I wish that I could. I wish that I could have been Nobody the person. Nobody has their I, shit right, together. I know. I as wish... soon as the infant <laughs> arrives, you can be sixty years old. Yeah. I wish that I could be who I am now. You know, but then again, I'm who I am now because of my girls, because of what they've taught me, and a lot of my wanting wanting to get yeah, better was because of them. I have four girls. I have twins. I have so my oldest daughter is about to next week turns 21. Uh, my twins just turned 18 and graduated high school. Thank That's you. So good. And then I have Boom. a 14 year old. So you know when I had I had uh, my my oldest was about three, almost three when my twins were born, and um, you know we were I was divorced by the time they were two. Uh, you know, and, and 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 no big deal there. Just that wasn't working. And then I met my husband now, and he. He, he was such an inspiration to me because he was doing a lot of self-work and I, he was calm. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. Y'all have been together a long time. Well, we've been together now, um, about 15, you know, a little, about a little 15 and a half years. So I don't know that that's a long, was only... yeah, just a few years, maybe like, maybe like five years, you know, and, um, so like five years and three kids. That's the... right. Well, two came the same day, you yeah. know, um, and 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 so, yeah, now I yeah, I just I just I have these girls that I am so proud of. They're so amazing. And I what I'm so grateful for is to be able to give them things that, you know, weren't given to me and no blame to my parents. They just weren't capable. But there that just wasn't available to people the way that we talk about things now, the things that are available, like therapy or treatment or whatever, whatever people sort of need. There's, there's a million ways to go get it now. Something did kind of happen overnight for me in my transformation. Um, while it was a very long journey, there was an event that happened about 13 years ago. I was my, so my final pregnancy, I lost, I lost at 11 weeks pregnant. And, um, it was very, uh, it was very traumatic. I miscarried at home and I had an opera. I knew that I, I knew that I was going to miscarry. Uh, I had like, a, you know, I went in and had the ultrasound and they were like, there's no heartbeat. And they offered me the procedure to go and, you know, like a DNC where they just 
take care of it. You don't have to go through all of it. And I it's had, an abortion. I guess. I mean, I think it's a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's technically an abortion, yes. But right. the, the child's not viable. I mean. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing. Yeah. It's, it's, you're going to miscarry. You're going to, you know, um, and I, because I had had my other children at home and naturally I had this idea that I, you know, I knew at that point that I wasn't going to have another one. I knew that. And so I thought, well, I just want to end my fertility in this way. Um, it took two weeks for it to happen and it was heartbreaking. I suffered. I mean, now looking back at it, I should have just had the procedure because I ended up almost dying. Which is, of course, in a conversation Bleeding. like now, oh yeah. So I ended up, I miscarried at home. I actually went into labor. It took like four hours. Uh, and then after... You didn't call? No, because I because I had, I, I knew that I had had babies at home. I knew what the process was. I knew what was going on. And, and I, I delivered it, had it. And was anybody there? Yeah, my husband was there. I wasn't alone. Um, and um, and we actually, you know, we were kind of calling my midwife throughout it. And I knew that, you know, if things went sideways, I would just call 911, which we ended up doing. I ended up, I started to bleed out. And so by the time that the ambulance got there and they got me into the hospital, what happened is they took me to the ER. And what they probably should have done is taken me straight to maternity. And so the ER let me lay there and bleed out for three and a half hours. And, um, and I kept saying, here's what I need. I knew that I needed, the I knew what was going on. I knew enough about what was happening that I knew I probably needed some surgery. Were you screaming bloody murder? No, because I kept fainting. I kept losing consciousness. You passed out. I did. And it was just so clear that they were completely incapable of dealing with it, that they were just neglecting me. This is a, we're in a first world country in downtown Charlotte, North Carolina, in the emergency room on a Saturday night. It was not overly busy, is neglecting a woman. And so, you know, that's a that's a bigger conversation that we don't need to go into, but when we talk about maternal care and women's rights and all these things that are happening in the world right now, we have to, you know, we have to include those sorts of things. And we have terrible maternal rates in the United States, like in a country that we shouldn't have. Women die all the time because of, you know, pregnancies and um so anyway, what, what uh, yeah. saved your life? Why didn't a you woman be? final? So anyway, I finally uh, coded, you know, and I and I this is what I vaguely remember is that I looked at my husband. I kept clinging on for consciousness and I kept losing it. And he's like trying to get them to do something. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're getting labs. And I mean, it was just so neglectful. And thank thankfully, when I coded, all the machines went crazy. And so they, that's when they stepped in. And I think at that point, it was the middle of the night and there had been like a shift in, you know, different people were, were coming in to work. Um, and they, I came to in like a much larger room with a blood transfusion in my arm. And, you know, all these people, probably 10 people working on me, just, it was just chaos when I came to. And then suddenly this woman comes in, this doctor, and she just starts yelling at people. And she's like, why didn't you call me? I've just been sitting in maternity. This is like, she was furious. An OB. An OB. And she said, I'm getting her stable and I'm taking her to the OR. And so she saved my life. And uh, she's uh, she's been my doctor ever since. And she just left the practice to go be at the hospital full time. And I'm still just crushed about it. But we, uh, after that happened, um, 
well, I went back, I started, to, I, I went to her like six months later to be like, you're my doctor now. And we both cried. Like we were hugging and she, she was like, no, it was bad. It could have been much worse. And I got there just in time. So that what changed my life. It changed my, I mean, it changed my life because it was at that moment that I realized I had been worrying about all the wrong things. I had been, I just knew that there were things that I uh, I needed to fix. And again, that was like 13 years ago. And it's taken, you know, it's taken all that time to uh, all, all the therapy and all the self-help and all the work to get to well, where I'm at now. Your girls would have grown up motherless. Yeah, yep. It would have been a disaster. Yeah. yeah. And, and the thing was, the thing is, is that I could have actually prevented all of that. And I could have just gone and had a procedure, a procedure that I don't know. I don't know how long that procedure is going to be around for women, but women die from those kinds of things all the time. You know, you know, this business of <clears throat> having the DNC, yeah. which is the type of abortion. It is. it is. It's the same procedure that's used in an abortion. Very same procedure. common. Yeah. Only yeah. there is no heartbeat. Right. You know, I didn't have to make that decision. I wasn't making that. I didn't have to make that decision. Right. Biology. Right. The only decision yeah. is whether you have to go through basically yeah. almost bleeding out yeah. or whether you have a first world procedure. Yeah, absolutely. Like nobody's absolutely. screaming about saving fetuses or saving, yeah. like nobody's puts any value on a, you know, fetus floating in a jar. No. I mean, this yeah. is a piece of dead tissue. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because I, um, people don't, you know, we don't talk about miscarriage, right? It's not. And I know so many women who've gone through so many. And I just, I feel like I was so fortunate that I didn't go through a miscarriage until I knew that I was already done with my fertility. Like I already, even, even that pregnancy, I was like, I don't know if I can go through this again. I don't know if I can. Pregnancy was very, very hard on me. And that one was a surprise. And I just was like, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, the truth is I didn't know that I wanted it. Right. And, um, I mean, I, I was, I was going to have it, but I didn't, there, I wasn't wholeheartedly like, this is what I want my future to look like. And so it was a little bit of a relief when I got over the first shock of like the sadness and the heartbreak of losing, uh, it. But when I, what I think about is the attachment for me in early pregnancy is the idea of what that's going to be, like what, who that child's going to become, what, what our experience as, you know, mother and child will be like their experience in the world. But it wasn't, again, when it comes down to, we don't talk about miscarriages because a lot of women don't have natural miscarriages anymore unless they just, they happen to have them because ultrasounds are used so early on and you you know, typically a lot of times you go in and there's not a heartbeat and a lot of women opt to have the procedure. The thing is, is that when I delivered it, uh, I saw it, I held it, you know, I got, and oh. it was, but it was, but it was tissue. It looked like, like, I, I, I say, I've never, you know, talked about this publicly because, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately and sort of wanting to talk about it, but I don't, I don't have platforms where I talk about these sorts of things. And, um, but I, delivered it. And, you know, it was, it was the whole thing was like, you know, the size of a dime at 11 weeks. And it was, it looked like a little horseshoe. So I saw it and I took it in because they were like, you know, bring whatever to the hospital. And so I put it in this tiny little ring box that I had. 
And when I got to the hospital, the doctor, the first doctor was even like, that's just a product of conception, you know? And it was true. It was true. And so for me, what I wasn't mourning that, you know, those cells and, and what that embryo was, that wasn't what I was, what I was dealing with was just what that meant for my life. And then at that point, because I almost died, it became this whole other thing for me because it was scary. That was my first real like near death experience, you know, to actually like code and come back. Um, it, it just, it caused a lot of, you know, trauma for my husband and <sighs> yeah. What, what, how did you behave differently? I knew that I was suffering and I knew that I, I knew that I needed to deal with my mental health. I knew I needed to get on top of like, what were these chemical things inside of me that maybe I was struggling with? I needed to figure out how to love myself because I didn't. And that was the process to start just, you know, therapy and different modalities. And I got into mindfulness eventually. And what I really, what, what really started was, um, in order for me to connect to who I was and to eventually learn to love myself, I had to know who I was and where I came from. And, you know, you, you know about this about me, but I'm deeply, deeply committed to the ancestors. And when I say that, I mean the, all, all the ancestors, right. But especially mine and to get back to my ancestors, to find them, to connect to them, to understand who they were. And not just my ancestors, like, you know, 50 years ago, hundred years ago, 200 years ago, but also, we don't, when we talk about our ancestors, especially in this country, there's, there's, a, that's a lot to unpack, but we don't talk about our ancestors from 10,000 years ago, our pre-agricultural ancestors. You know, we all have so many ancestors. We have so much DNA inside of us. And so that was a big part of my journey. Uh, and what started, uh, because I ended up very sick, I did not recover physically from all that blood loss. It took a year. I was so severely anemic and sick. I could not get better after my hormones were just a wreck. Like I had all these physical problems. And what it led me to was this sort of ancestral health community of like the way people ate and lived and all that. And I dove very deep into that because I started to get well, I started to get better, I started to physically feel better and find some, some, some ways of adapting my diet and lifestyle. And I would talk about the connection to our ancestors. I would, you know, speak, um, especially about how disconnected we are from the people who came before us, the DNA that's inside of us and how it's really driving so, so many of our problems now. How do you connect to those the yeah. ancient. So I've always, as a little girl, I wanted to know, I loved history. Like I loved history. I loved learning about the past. I would ask tons of questions. I was very curious throughout all of this. And you know, that kind of is the driving force in my life today, because I feel like, um, I, I mean, I think, I think mindfulness and meditation and connection and asking you know, asking to be shown, like who, who were, you know, I, I believe in this power bigger than myself. And I believe it, that the, that, you know, in the universe and that this, you can, it's, it's inside of me. Our DNA is inside of us. And that the wisdom of all those ancestors from all those thousands of years is literally in our DNA. It's imprinted 
in us. We would not be here without them. So it's one part of it is just, you know, um, honoring them. That's one part of it. Um, How do you do that? I I remember them. I am fortunate. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I moved here 20 years ago, but my mother is a Charlottean. And what I learned about myself over the last five, six years ago, thanks to that Ancestry.com genealogy, is that I'm actually a seventh generation Charlottean. So, you know, one one generation removed. And I always had this pull to come here. I ended up coming here with my first husband for work. I was actually doing a morning show down in Columbia, South Carolina, and we were just ready to get out of Columbia when our daughter was a year old. So we moved up here. You know, I did radio here for a while, and but I always knew I was supposed to be here. And I didn't like really grow up coming here. I came here a couple of times with my mom wasn't close to her family that lived here. Um, and so I didn't have like a deep connection, but I just knew there was like a driving, there was a driving force. And so when I found out that, you know, my, my background started at the beginning of Charlotte, and that's when I started to connect with things that were just bigger and deeper than I ever could have imagined. Um, do you feel like right as you started to talk about spirit, the wind picks up here at Mountain <laughs> Island Lake? <laughs> I am woo-woo. I lean into it. <laughs> Me too. It. Me too. <laughs> um, so to go yeah. full woo-woo, yeah. um, you ask for answers. You're yeah. curious. You, yeah. you you ask of spirit or of yeah. the universe. Yeah. Um, when and how do you get answers or help or sustenance? Yeah. yeah from the ancestors. It's a privilege that I know where my ancestors are buried, right? That's an immense privilege because not everybody gets to have that for all sorts of reasons. But I know where my fifth great grandmother is buried at the end of this road at the church, you know, where we're sitting, right? My fifth great grandparents. I say my both- At the Presbyterian church? At the Presbyterian church. And so I get to say, like, I say great grandparent, great grandmother, because I specifically am very drawn to the women lineage, I am always thinking about what did the women of, of my lineage, what did they experience in the 1700s and the 1800s and the 1900s and the 700s because I'm a woman and I'm a mother and, you know, I have all these daughters. And so I'm, it's sort of like what we do as humans. We're just trying to compare to make sense of our own experience, our own existence. But what I do is I go and I take flowers. There's, you know, I, I can go to these this cemetery and I, there's a cemetery in uptown Charlotte that I have, you know, people buried in. Um, and there's one at the first Presbyterian church, the settlers no, or is the it the one at the, the, the Elmwood, the biggie. The, yeah. Yeah. That place is amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. It's there's really a spirit wild. to that place. So that cemetery is gigantic, right? I had been looking online. I had no idea where my great grandfather was buried or anybody. I set off on a journey to find that grave in that giant cemetery and I found it. I walked around and I came I mean talk I came upon it and I figured out who she was the first of his three wives. She had um she died at 21 of tuberculosis. They had had a 1-year-old that had died right like like right before she died. Uh, and then, you know, I'm the product of his third. Well, she was the only tombstone that was there. But when I did go to the city and and dug, that's where a bunch of my, you know, family members were buried. They just were so poor. They didn't have a 
her parents probably just paid for. This is the turn of the century. This is the early 1900s leading up to the 1920s. Everybody was just poor in that. Well, my my family, they were poor. So that is really what started my, you know, my journey. And so have you ever directly encountered the presence of a particular ancestor? Um, I have felt uh yeah, I feel like I have. Yeah. Which one? Yeah. Uh multiple ones but especially my fifth grade grandmother the one who's buried just down the road from what is here her elizabeth name? elizabeth yeah i feel very close to her i feel i i think about her often i talk about her often i try to research i have a copy of her will i her her will it makes me sad when i look at it you know um because just the that she had to have her son-in-laws and sons sign it because she wasn't allowed to like sign her own will and be you know so um she had she had maybe i think nine or eleven children um yeah so i feel very very close to her almost every culture yeah for most of the history of homo sapiens yeah we have had the experience of, ever what you want to call it, essence yeah. of a person who has long been gone from this earth, yeah. whether it's the saints mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the Christian world yeah. or the ancestors in the Eastern yeah. world or the yeah. ancestors in indigenous peoples yeah. or in Africa. Yes. Well, you know, the West is, the West is, um, the West doesn't celebrate our ancestors like other cultures do, right? And so we've—I think we've really the Western world, you know, America and Europe. We I think don't even celebrate old people we the don't, way. I think we've really—I think we've really—I think we're really suffering as a result of not remembering our dead and not honoring, you know, uh, them in that way because we're not passing things on. I mean, let's bring that to where we are right now. Literally, you know, the land that we're that we're sitting on and we're you know recording this in the city of Charlotte is that. That brings to something. Nature right, Park right, once known right. as Latta Plantation. Exactly. And so, you know, the thing about this this space is that we, you know, this was a plantation. And there was something like probably, you know, throughout a course of different, the, the two different um, owners who had this land, um, you know, 50, 60 enslaved people over a period of you know, 60 years or so. And, and they are buried. The Nobody knows. That's the thing. Nobody knows where they're buried. There's no records of them. And so when I talk, that's, that's But it why would only make sense that they're buried somewhere on the property. They could be buried in the Presbyterian church. They could be under the lake. They could be any. And so that's the, that's, that's the horrific fact of why I prep it saying it's a privilege to know where my ancestors are buried, that we can go down, you know, a mile and I can go because because other people whose ancestors were part of this um, North Mecklenburg, Northwest Mecklenburg plantation community of the 1800s, uh, 17 and 1800s, um, whose ancestors were enslaved in this plantation community, they don't have that benefit. There are very few spaces just in this sort of, I would say, you know, 10 square mile radius of where we are right now. Um, and that, and that, you know, that people don't know where their ancestors are buried. There aren't records. And so 
you know, that's something that I'm incredibly passionate about and care about and um, work diligently to try to support the efforts uh, because I think that's one, that's, there's, there are many, many steps that need to be taken in the direction to help healing happen and to grow forward together as a society that is continuing to live under the cycles of oppression that, um, you know, were put into place by, frankly, my ancestors 200, 250 years ago in this city, right? And so I have to honor that and recognize that that is the, the, you know, that's my history and I can't just pretend like that doesn't matter. And that, oh, that was, well, that was them. That's not me. I would never do that. Right. It, that's we, and we live as, that's what we are doing as a culture. We just want to bury it and whitewash it and pretend like, you know, it didn't happen. Well, there's some people that still want it to happen, you know, unfortunately, and we're also living that out. Um, and, but we can't do anything. We can't grow forward if we don't recognize that these atrocities happened and we don't try to do the work to make sure that they never happen again and to heal what has happened and stop fighting about it. Just do, you know, like, just do the work. It is the finish to, you know, what started as this, this, this girl, you know, 35 years ago who was vastly suffering in life and had no idea who I was or who I would become. And there were so many dark, dark, dark years. And to now be, you know, this, this mom of these amazing girls. And I, you know, truly there are days where I'm terrified of this world. And I think, oh my gosh, like what, what is here for my children? Um, so I can go way, way out there, you know, but I have to just come back in and again, go back into quiet and go back into meditation and mindfulness and be in nature and connect with my ancestors. And I'm always shown the next, the next way forward and how, how can, you know, who are the people to work with to get things done so that we can create some, you know, start with healing and then support. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever see that in my lifetime, you know, really happen, but I'll die trying. If we get struck by lightning right now, and the only thing that survives is this little piece yeah. of digital audio, <laughs> um, what is your legacy? Oh, wow. I mean, I think that, I mean, I think what I've said is my legacy is just to create um, healing in our, in our city and to try to make it better for, you know, future, future children. And um, like your kids. Yeah. Well, yeah, but ev everybody's kids, you know, everybody's kids. You're not a grandma here. yet. God, no, Lord, no. <laughs> you don't want to be a grandma? I, I mean, uh, yes, eventually. Yes, yes, but not yet. You know, we're, we're not there yet. No, 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 no. What do you think your girls, their takeaway is? In what way do you think they might relate to their daughters? Yeah. Because of, because of Kendall, yeah. because of their yeah. mother. Well, I think that they, I think that what I've been able to instill in them is a deep respect for um, the DNA inside of us and where we come from. And I already see it, you know, with them that, they, I talk about the ancestors on a daily basis. <laughs> and so it is almost like, you know, the ancestors Do are- Do they roll their eyes? They used to, but they don't anymore. They don't anymore. They, I, I think they really see it. I think they're starting to understand that these, these cycles of life and of, you know, life and death and the moons and all these things that inherently women 
of all of our lineages have experienced at some point connect us to them. And so that there's great power in that. Oh, Kendall Kendrick, the <laughs> great, 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 great granddaughter of Elizabeth. <laughs> I honor you. I respect you. Thank you. And all the mothers before you. Thank you. Yes. Here's to the ancestral mothers. Here's to the ancestral mothers. May they always be with us. Yes. Blessed be. Thanks. Thanks. Boy, do I feel grateful to know Kendall Kendrick, to uh, call her my friend, and a lot of stuff I did not know. Uh, I am doing these kinds of interviews professionally um, with really high-quality film crews. And I'm going to tell you a lot more about that. I've got super exciting things coming up in the coming weeks in my business, which is called Voice Locket. Like a locket for a photo, only to preserve a voice for many, many generations to come, the way Kendall's is preserved now. But we're going to do it on film. It's super fun. I've done it already, and I'm going to be telling you more about it and upcoming offers in the weeks to come. Voice Locket. Uh, I'll tell you more. I'll tell you more. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported Man Listening, who has supported In Her Words, who has supported this effort to elevate the voices of strong women for two and a half, almost three years now. Thank you so much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. <laughs>